Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the review of Who Does Geoengineering Podcast. We're here today with Elliot Woodhouse, and we're going to be talking about the justice, legitimacy, ethics of solar geoengineering as it relates to both humans and nature. Welcome to the show, Elliot. Hi, good to be here. So I understand you did a PhD in the subject. Just completed. January 8th, completed my Viva Pass corrections. Yeah, but it's um, yeah, it's been a project I've been on since 2019, working with the Leverholm Trust Centre for Climate Change Mitigation. Basically, is that how you pronounce it? I've never known how to pronounce it. I've always said Leverhulme, which is like Hume, like the philosopher, right? Um, um, it's spelt with lever at the front of it, isn't it? Well, it's, so, it's after, uh, after it. It's a real person, right, isn't it? It's Lord, Le- Lord Leverhulme or someone. Oh, uh, right, okay. Who's on to find uh, out oh, you know, Yeah. Oh, oh, I didn't know it was the same person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I... <laughs> Interesting figure. I... Not, a, not a good guy. Not a good guy. I always thought, I always thought um, uh, the philosopher was was the philosopher Hume with an L or Hume with an without uh, there's, an L. There's a, there's a Scottish philosopher actually speaking about moving to Edinburgh, but um, I'm gonna forget his first name now. But it's Hume, Hume H U M E, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. Okay, um, but there is there is a H U L M E Hume as well, isn't he? He's quite famous as well. But I can't remember what he did. I thought it was the philosopher, but I've got it wrong. Uh, anyway, mean, they're, they're very, they very well might be. Gonna have to Google. Okay. It. We're all lost. We're lost already. Yeah, Digital yeah. Review too. <laughs> five seconds in and talking about something that's not with what we're supposed to be talking about. So tell me about this Leverhulme guy. Uh, while we're on the subject of sidetracks, we might as well get properly sidetracked. What? What? Uh, why didn't you like him? Oh well, you, yeah. Well, we're probably sidetracked now. But uh, Lord Lord Leverhulme is a, or however you pronounce his name, was a. Um, very associated with Belgium, uh, Belgian colonialism in in the Congo and the uh, well. Is it roughly the worst example there. of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roughly the worst example of colonialism ever to exist. I mean, you can't right, get, right, and and so he's a kind of industrialist who's who's very close to. I, I you know, I'm half remembering a story here, but very close to uh, King Leopold of Belgium, who who's who runs the colony as his personal fife. But he he's a soap maker, right, and so. Uh, is is interested in the again here half remembering the story, but his links with with the the Belgian colony is through that, and it's then you can see the link to to Unilever, right? And then the Leverhulme Trust are a I don't understand the the real relationship between them and um, the Unilever Corporation, but the but the phil the the philanthropic trust of the um, of the the Leverhulm Trust is in some way related to that. I don't know the details, but but the actual Lord Leverhulme, in many generations removed from the current <laughs> Leverhulm Trust, is uh yeah. There's a there's a book on, on it called um, got it on my shelf somewhere. Uh, Lord Leverhulme's Ghosts, which uh, which tells the story of his involvement in the uh, the Congo colonies. Yeah, yeah. The, the Congo is pretty interesting. Like I mean, uh, I think King Leopold is probably responsible for the the worst atrocities of any colonialism. I mean, you can, you could say that, I mean, there are probably more deaths in terms of, uh, you know, from disease or whatever that afflicted the native American Indians, but in terms of deliberate killings, I'd say, you know, the brutality and, and the scale of it in the Belgian Congo is probably as bad as colonialism gets. And even, I think even a diehard colonial apologist would probably struggle to justify what the Belgians did in the Congo. They had a, one uh, uh, one bullet, one life policy, didn't they? So they used to go and pack ears off to prove that they'd killed as many people as the bullets that they'd fired, which isn't really how you know, war works. So uh, a lot of people got 
packed up for no reason at all, just to sort of meet some kind of administrative goal, the banality of evil and all that. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. I kind of just assumed that the guy behind Unilever... I mean, I, I don't want to... I hold my hands up. I don't know the, the exact links. The lever part of Lever Hume is, is uh, the same as the lever in Unilever. And yeah, ultimately, it traces its origins to, to this, this fellow, I believe. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, who, who knew in our, our world of woke that the name of somebody who was probably a tier one colonial bastard has managed to remain on soap powder? You would have thought they'd have uh, expunged that some time ago. But no, I think, I think anyway, there's, a, there's a statue of there's a big statue of him outside the modern art galleries in Liverpool, which are the Leverhulme galleries, right? Uh, because mm. among, among other philanthropic activity, he was interested in. Yes, because I, I think those galleries were at one point like a Victorian, you know, these kind of, uh, you know, quasi-philanthropic, like ideal workers' villages, you know, these these kind of improving sort of barrack factory kind of kind of deals, a bit like Bourneville, right, you know, near Birmingham. Yeah, I used to live right by there. I used right, to go yeah, yeah, yeah. Bourneville and regularly went out in Bourneville. So, yeah, and so, so the university. Similar, similar scenario up there, I believe. And, you know, again, I'm half remembering a story here, but... Uh, but the statue of him is still up there, oh, right? Right. Um, I hope he was um, nicer to people in uh, Model Village than that was Port Sunlight, <laughs> wasn't it? The, the Model Village that he was they built. I, it's quite difficult to um, imagine any square the whole sort of Belgian colonial atrocities with um, building Model Villages and um, uh, being nice to everybody. But you know, I think the peculiarly British way of being to export all your atrocities and be pious at home, we still do it. You know, things like our fertility law, we sort of have lots of regulations about what you can and can't do in Britain and then just import everything that we can't obtain under our legal system from elsewhere where things that we don't like are done for us and on our behalf and with our money. Been going on for hundreds of years and I'm sure continue the ignoble tradition. But anyway, none of this is about your thesis. So PhD stands for pointless, hard and dull. How pointless, hard and dull did you find it? Pointless, hard and dull. Uh, Hopefully not too pointless. but yeah, the thesis is basically uh, an investigation of a certain kind of objection which is levelled against geoengineering projects. Um, you said it's early radiation management projects earlier. I also talk about uh, carbon capture projects as well, partly because the critique often gets levelled against them too. Um, and I'm kind of agnostic about whether or not both of these count as geoengineering or not. They certainly used to be both grouped together. But I'm interested in in kind of critiques made of these projects based on a kind of worry that they they mess with or tamper with the natural world in a way which is uh, immoral or kind of otherwise justifiable, uh, unjustifiable, or that they 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 kind of just treat the the natural world in an improper fashion. So, so the, the thesis was really interested in looking at those kind of critiques that the geoengineering projects faces and sort of doing an evaluation about how, well, how <laughs> are they good critiques? Doing a kind of evaluation of the kind of, of, of the arguments that go into them. And so the, the kind of blog post we're looking at that was published as a summary of it is sort of goes into that idea and looks at the, well, you know, where those critiques are leveled and, and why they might not be as, as salient as you might initially think. For the keen among us who will actually read your PhD, it'd have to be very keen, very long. Well, yeah, 
an estimated number is zero for that. Ah. Um, but uh, what's the title of the PhD and where's, where can it be obtained? And similarly, what's the title of the somewhat less ambitious 1,500-word blog post that summarises the, uh, the arguments in a couple of pages? So you can find the blog post on um, the Leverholm Centre for Climate Change Mitigation's uh, blog or website. If you type in Elliot Woodhouse's Ethics of Climate Engineering, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Um, as for the thesis, the thesis is entitled Messing with Nature, Environmental Ethics and the Challenge of Geoengineering. That will, in theory, be retrievable at some point, although I'm still working on the corrections. But these things get published open access now through the university. So if you're extremely keen, you should be able to retrieve it. Other than that, there are some of, some of the chapters are currently under review for, for papers. So. At least a paper format means that something will be read somewhere, even if the main PhD is too daunting for anyone to read. So how long did it take you and was it interesting? Because my understanding is it takes a very long time and most people find that it's not very interesting when they do a PhD. So I started in late 2019. So most of the time I was working on it through through the pandemic and I finished in September 2023. Um, okay, back around as much as some people do when they're doing it, right? Well, as for faffing around, I'm sure there's plenty of, of, of that. It's certainly finished within the, the set time frame. Well, some people take like seven years to do it, don't they? Well, like, yeah, some people do it part-time. This was, this was full, full-time and, and fully, fully funded from the beginning. So, so in some ways, it was, it was about as easy as they go. Well, that's good. Uh, where'd you get your money from? Was it the Liver Home Trust paid for it and all what? Indeed, yeah, yeah. They had some. They they were interested in in funding something like this, partly because I I suspect um, it's very clear when you talk to. Well, it seems clear within the community of people who research geoengineering techniques that what they see as a major challenge to implementation is developing social license, and you especially see that in the wake of things like you know the Spice Project in in the UK where. Even quite innocuous field trials were were shut down by negative public opinion, which in some ways or abject uh, timidity, depending on how you might argue it. Well, maybe, but it seems like at least part of what was motivating those fears was something like the kind of worries that I'm interested in today about about kind of making illegitimate changes to the way uh, that the climate system or, or the the way that the natural world operates. Well, and so. I- just want to, go on. want to understand that the arguments that you're using. So there's two two ways that you can justify deep green arguments. And and they can be sort of broadly summarized thus, right? You can on the one hand you can say bears have rights, okay? Bears are, you know, not persons in law, but they are philosophical persons. Even if they weren't conscious, you could argue that they are philosophically have philosophical personhood, you know, they have a right to exist. They are objectively uh, worthy beings, right? The other argument you can make is a sort of Chesterton's fence kind of argument in that don't mess with bears, you don't understand bears, right? So uh, which of those two kind of wellsprings of thinking are you predominantly following in your line of argument? Let's start from the beginning. So when people are, when we conduct public opinion surveys of geoengineering technologies, one thing that is regularly found is a kind of an expression that people that people are worried that these technologies, if implemented, would mess with or tamper with nature. That's found in the research that the Leverholm Trust 
conducts on public public opinion. LC3M conducts on public opinion, and it's repeated very broadly on uh, in public surveys. So my starting point for the thesis is investigating that what seems to be a folk worry about, as they put it, messing with or tampering with nature. Now there are different ways of interpreting what messing with or tampering with nature is. One of them might be like. I don't know the term, but you say Chesterton's fence. If you mess with nature, then you're gonna you're gonna hurt yourself. Don't poke the bear, right? These technologies, we don't really know how. Well, you might, you know, I'm being facetious here, but you you might think solar radiation management, uh, you know, adds another kind of uh, element to the mix of an already unstable climate system that we don't know a lot about. We better clear of it. You know, experience tells us that we're we're pretty bad environmental managers. And we should, you know, just let nature take its course. Don't poke the bear. That's one side of the argument. And and that's not predominantly what I look at. What I'm interested in is reading these kind of worries about tampering with nature as implying kind of more like the the, the first argument, although we can get into why it might be different, uh, that there are certain right and wrong ways to treat the natural world, which are kind of separate from from the consequences. They might have good environmental outcomes, but they they could still potentially be wrong. And, and part of the reason why I think that it is plausible to interpret the worry in that way is that another thing that comes up in public opinion studies is a worry that geoengineering techniques play God, right? Uh, and, and what does playing God mean? Well, it seems like it, it probably means something like overstepping the bounds, right? Or, or dealing in areas where you don't have the kind of legitimate remit to deal in. And so that's why I think that there is, it is plausible to think that there's a, some kind of critique about the legitimate limits of what humans are allowed to do in, in their kind of, uh, dealings with and alterations of the natural world. And so what the PhD. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me, let me just yes. come back on a, a couple of points. So firstly, Chesterton Fence, I think it's very interesting. So it's GK Chesterton. He's one of these chaps who says quite a lot of things. One of my sort of favorite sort of modern day philosophers, like, Thomas Sowell, he's actually not a philosopher, he's an economist, but he's one of the people I read on Twitter. You've got these sort of tribute accounts that post quotes of them. I, I find Chesterton's musings quite interesting in general. And Chesterton's fence is a sort of defense of conservatism, basically. It basically summarizes the position that you should never remove a fence unless you know why it's put there in the first place, or being that you kind of remove a fence, you might find a bull charging at you. And, and it's to take that and, and, and create a metaphor based on it as a social principle. So you might, for example, say, you know, to take something that we don't uh, you know, value much in the modern world. You might say, well, okay, most people cohabit and don't get married. You know, conservatives might say, well, actually, marriages have historically been the foundation of the family and have been the basis of human societies the world over. And we're doing something quite fundamentally terrible by undermining the institution of marriage. Now, I, I'm not you know, here to particularly have that debate. But the point about Cheston's fence is that even though you might have lots of reasons for marriage, like, you know, financial stability for children, blah, 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 you might not realise the true value of a social institution until it's gone. And that's the, the Cheston's fence principle is that, you know, if you've got a, a limit on what you do, like, for example, not going and poking aerosols into the upper atmosphere, there might be some pretty good reasons why you don't do that. Now, I think an interesting contra to your argument is the idea, you know, that the kind of messing with nature. 
I think most geoengineers, in fact, every geoengineer that I'm aware of, would not advocate this just as a matter of convenience. You know, we prefer it a bit colder. Let's do some geoengineering. I think Kate Rickey has done some work on it. It's highly theoretical. I don't for a second suspect Kate Rickey actually believes that we should just geoengineer uh, for the hell of it, just to kind of make the climate colder, to make the economy work better. Uh, but it's a response to pollution. And does the messing with nature argument actually hold in, in the current environment now perhaps a more obvious recent and pertinent example is the sami people who have put the kibosh on the scopex experiment or uh, we'll have to date put the kibosh on the scopex experiment and they have taken precisely this argument you know there there isn't philosophical justification in going and doing solid geoengineering despite the background context of rampant climate change which threatens the existence of the biomes on which people like the Sami herders depend. The permafrost biomes are being now replaced by taiga forests as a result of the warming of the peri-Arctic region. So this is an existential threat to them. But despite that, their worldview is that an additional intervention, even to prevent the damage that's already been done, is not justified. What's your view on that? And what does your thesis say about it? Yeah, so that sounds... a bit like what the strong version of the the messing with nature argument is, if I've understood you correctly, is that it's a strongly kind of non-consequentialist. I.e., it doesn't matter whether the results are good or bad. It would be wrong to to act in this way. A lot, and so in a twenty eleven review paper, um, a philosopher, an environmental philosopher called Christopher Preston, basically made the claim that. Um, no matter their kind of theoretical differences, you know, between philosopher and philosopher, the, the broad gamut of, of environmental philosophy presumes about against making these kind of uh, intentional alterations of the climate system. Mm-hmm. At best, he thought that they could understand it as a lesser evil. It would be permissible because it's better than letting climate change continue unchecked, you know, presuming a whole lot of things there, that this is indeed the best way to deal with climate change, whatever. And so he so he would think that they were they were permissible, but but even though they were permissible, they were still wrong. Now what I'm arguing in the thesis is that actually the case is probably weaker than that. I'm actually returning to a lot of the the authors that that Preston cites in in support of his position. A lot of them have a much more nuanced position on making kind of large scale environmental interventions than he perhaps assumed in that article. What I think is that if you go back and read a lot of these kind of canonical environmental philosophers, it's often possible to make a case within their theory for the permissibility of geoengineering, not just as a lesser evil, but as as actually something that would be permissible. And to take an example that sounds a, a little bit what you were talking about earlier, uh, the philosopher Paul Taylor was, was, is very, very influential in the kind of early days of thinking about environmental philosophy. And, uh, ha- and his work has occasionally made its way into is kind of... Paul Taylor was an American philosopher. He wrote, he was writing in what we would call maybe the first or second wave, it depends how you count it, of environmental philosophy. So sort of in the 70s to the kind of early 90s. Uh, environmental kind of philosophy as a discipline really emerged in three places simultaneously. 
the US in Norway and in kind of Australia. And so he was very influential in the kind of US school. Wrote a book in 1986 called uh, Respect for Nature. And it was very, very influential. And and so that's why Preston sees fit to kind of review it as part of, um, you know, part of the cannot, part of the canon of, of environmental philosophers. Now, in that book... Sorry, what, can please, I just ask, what do environmental philosophers think about putting out forest fires with aircraft? I mean, is there any real difference between putting out a forest fire that's been artificially started with an airstrike than there is to addressing global warming through geoengineering? They don't seem morally distinct. They seem distinct to me only in scale. Do, do the people who criticise geoengineering at scale also say that we shouldn't conduct airstrikes on forest fires? Well, you said a couple of things about forest fires which might make someone like this interested. Well, what that might make a morally relevant difference. You said artificially started and by an airstrike. So, no, I'm saying artificially started by, for example, a discarded cigarette. If somebody okay. drops a cigarette in a forest and starts a fire, yeah. you know, should we then carry out an airstrike on the on the forest fire? I mean, it seems you know, reasonable to say from a deep green point of view, well, you know, we started the fire, but it's messing with nature to do an airstrike. We're just going to let it burn. So um, there, there would be a morally relevant difference, most environmental philosophers would say, between something which was, if, if it was caused by a cigarette, then it's not a natural fire, right? But if it was caused by a lightning strike, it might be different. One of these seems like intervening to yeah. make, make better a, a problem that was caused by people uh, in the other case, it looks like maybe this is, you should just let nature take take its course. So one of the yeah, things... Yeah, I mean, that... like, hold on, let, if I'll just interject no, the point, right? The lightning strike, I get your point with the, light, with the lightning strike. And in a pristine forest environment, where the forest itself wasn't threatened by human activity, you'd probably be right. But the point that I'm making is in a situation where an artificial human intervention has caused a profound change to a natural system, is it then not morally permissible? to use an alternative human intervention to correct the damage caused by that uh, artificial intervention, which is, in my view, equivalent to climate change. You release, you know, chlorofluorocarbons, they're greenhouse gas, and then, or are CFCs greenhouse gas? I think they are, but... Arguably, yeah. generally are. Helicarbons generally, generally are, the replacement ones are. But anyway, I'm well, picking no, they on thin out, gas. They thin out ozone, which is a greenhouse gas, aren't they? Yeah. But yes. I'm, I'm trying to work out what the net effect... I think the replacement ones, the climate, the ozone safe ones are definitely very strong greenhouse gases, which is why I picked that specific example right, rather okay. than a more you know, pervasive pollutant than CO2. So if you're if you're um, climate researchers can write in and shoot me for uh, getting the climate physics wrong. But the point I'm making is if you do a bad thing and then someone else or you try and repair that bad thing with some other intervention, to me, dropping a cigarette and burning a forest down doesn't seem to be wholly different from releasing naughty gases and messing up the climate system. So what's the difference, according to these deep green philosophers, that take such firm views on such things? Well, my point is, is that when they've been read by people like Preston, it would seem that that nuance is lacking. But actually, if you return to these texts, often the nuance is there. So Preston's belief that, that Taylor would support a kind of prohibition on geoengineering is the fact that he supports what he calls a duty of non-interference, you know, a right to kind of preserve nature and natural systems intact and to kind of limit modification. But Taylor has 
another principle that he advocates, which is a principle of restitutive justice, a duty of making right where you've previously made wrong. And he gives kind of criteria for, you know, surely not every every act that's done with the intention of, of making right is is going to be good. You have to <laughs> you have to make sure the cure is is um, you know better than the disease, so to speak. But but yeah, that I, that nuance is there, and, and I think it's within those kind of conditions that that you can make plausible arguments for at least some forms of geoengineering. At least some of them are going to be cures which are better than the disease. And, but when we kind of gloss over these environmental philosophers and reduce them down to their, you know, the most memorable parts of them, you know, these defenses of, of environmental preservation and stuff, then I think we often, we often miss the nuance that was there. So that was really interesting for me in the, in the thesis was to return to these authors and, and read them in much more deep uh, detail than sometimes, you know, you get articles which are like, oh, here's, here, you know, here's the ethical considerations of geoengineering and you'll, ha- you'll have a quick gloss over, um, you know, kind of deep green concerns and they'll say things like, uh, leave nature intact, don't modify it, don't make intentional modifications. I think by and large, the, the, the authors who are, who are used to support that kind of view are, have much more nuanced views than they, they've been given credit for. And that's not to say that they could support every form of geoengineering, but I think there are at least plausible uh, arguments to be made that they could they could support some of them at least. So, in answer to your question, they they often do they often do think that you you would be able to dr- drop water on a fire to to put out a cigarette caused forest fire. Are these people all dead, or can we actually ask them what they think? Paul Taylor is dead. There are, there are some living. So, so one of the authors I review is is an Eric Katz who was also relatively influential within a kind of. Um, U.S. School of Environmental Thinking, but and and he has recently written about geoengineering, and he he does take a hard line against it. But I think there are other reasons to reject his his theory. I think he proves too much. I, I think that his 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 arguments would lead to many quite innocuous forms of environmental modification. Maybe putting out a forest fire. Have to think more about what he would say about that. But. Um, he is a very strongly preservationist character in his ethics, which I think inadvertently proves too much. Um, so there are other reasons to reject his thinking. I think with plausible theories of environmental ethics, they're often far more nuanced. Well, look, from my po- personal point of view, I mean, we, we live in a, a highly anthropogenic world, right? I mean, we can't just imagine that humans haven't affected nature. And like, certainly in countries that have got a long history of habitation, like, you know, most of Europe, for example, there's only very small parts of Europe now which have got decent tracts of natural land that are you know, predominantly unaffected by human interference. Like there's some, I think there's, is it a Bieslau forest in Poland that's a really decent sized bit of forest with. I think it's a medieval hunting like reserve or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that kind of thing. I mean, like there's, well, obviously there's the, you know, the old craggy island and places like that that people don't happen to live that. Fairly unspoiled, but in terms of these large-scale biomes, then you know they just don't really exist anymore. And you know, even the Amazon, which is seen as being a sort of fairly pristine environment now, had a, a long history of human habitation. And what we're seeing in the Amazon is actually, as some wag pointed out on Twitter, not a pristine environment, but a post-apocalyptic scene of civilizational collapse. Which absolutely, is, yeah. But, 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 but this is a, this is a central enough to be funny, right? 
the point I'm making is like, how can you have environmental philosophy that's based on the idea of a pristine natural world when such a thing doesn't exist? And you know, frankly, in Europe, hasn't existed for millennia. It's a good question, and this is a, this is a central kind of the, uh, uh, theoretical break between the early kind of environmental philosophers and the later ones. Um, this is the, this is a common criticism of the early school is that they are very strongly wedded to the idea of of wilderness or uh, you know an environmental ethics built around preserving a a world that's free from human influence and interference which may or may not have ever existed. There are well, more sophisticated that, defences. If I just come on that point, just, it's interesting you say that about ever existing. I mean, like, so taking Britain as an example, so we've had hominids in uh, the UK uh, even sort of before the last Ice Age. And in fact, it's, it's possible that the Basque people were a remnant of uh, people from before the last Ice Age, right, that have then... You know, it's a, it's a linguistic isolate. The people that lived in the Pyrenees mountains, mountains who've had potentially very little contact with um, uh, people for outsiders for a, a very long period of time, and that implies a very long history of human habitation. So the idea that you know there's an unspoilt wilderness in in Britain, you know, hominids were around before there was Britain, you know, as we know it today, when it was just under a mile of ice in some places, certainly in Scotland. So you know, the, the idea of and certainly in Africa where there's been sort of a good quarter of a million years of human habitation. There wasn't really a natural environment as we know it today, post ice, post the last glaciation, that was ever free of humans. So I think you're quite right to make the point that humans are, you know, to some extent, part of nature. Um, and, you know, obviously by other measures, not because we haven't had modern industrial civilization for that length of time, but we certainly have had humans wandering around stabbing large animals and eating them, which has had a material effect on the flora and fauna. And just looking back into sort of fairly deep time, Australian Aborigines shaped the landscape with fire tens of thousands of years ago. We've had megafauna extinctions uh, pretty much everywhere that humans have gone. So we can see from Australia and from the areas where humans have been involved in the megafauna extinctions that uh, even ancient hominids have shaped the landscape quite profoundly. And it's very difficult, therefore, to draw a distinction between what are pristine natural environments and which ones are not. Uh, I personally can't draw that distinction readily, and I'm keen to understand whether you can. And what do environmental philosophers say about pre-modern peoples and their role in shaping the environment? Is that anthropogenic intervention or not? So um, there's kind of two questions here. Yeah, so with the second the second part of it, would that count as a, an anthropogenic uh, intervention um, I would say, I, I would think that most people would say no. And that's because I suspect in making a, an ethical kind of evaluation of an action, you, you need to, um, things like intention and, and being able to understand the, uh, the demands of morality are generally important. Right? You know, we think murder is worse than manslaughter because intention is there. Well, let's break that down because, I mean, we haven't had uh, full knowledge, societal knowledge of climate change for more than about 30 years, partly because of the oil companies deliberately creating public doubt, even though the basic principles have been understood for 150 years. And you could also make a case that if you are cognizant of an action but not intending that occur to occur, not cognizant of an effect, rather, 
but not intending that effect to occur, then it's not intentional. You know, for example, I might drink drive from the pub, but I don't intend to run a child over. So am I really responsible if I do? Most people say I am, but there's a school of thought that say, well, you know, it's not the same as deliberately running a child over, even if you're not very good at running over children deliberately and, and you are very reckless at, at putting them at risk of being run over by drink drivers all the time. You know, I don't want to get off the point here, but yes, it, like she, I think if someone intentionally ran over a child or if they did it deliberately, it's very clear one who did it deliberately did something worse. Well, but, the child is not going to notice the difference. That's my point. Yes. Um, so, so this is, the, yeah. Um, and I think that just to, to sort of challenge your argument from another, another angle, you know, the, the kind of reshaping of continental scale biomes, as you have seen in Australia, is a very, very severe anthropogenic intervention in the climate system, even if it wasn't understood. I mean, even if the people that were there didn't have an understanding of the world as a globe, nor of uh, Australia as a continent within it, they were still cognizant that they were shaping the environment. They were very deliberately burning the landscape to clear game and to uh, change the, um, the species mix that existed. So it certainly was intentional, even if they didn't understand what a continent was, right? So these things are not clear. They're not distinct. They're not easy distinctions to draw right so working out what is moral what is deliberate what is anthropogenic none of those have clear-cut simple answers it's not like humanity landed built industrial on a spaceship and built industrial civilization like in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy well at least that's not the leading theory of how humanity arrived hitchhikers might be right we're not sure so i'm wondering i'm I'm trying to follow the important line of the, the, the discussion here. So the question originally was about how do these, this kind of traditional school of environmental philosophers make this distinction? And their view is probably quite different from mine. So it's importantly not con conflate what I think with what I'm trying to explain their view might be. I think that you know, if they were to, to say that the, the actions of pre-modern people were morally, uh, should be morally condemned, they would, they would probably have to say that, that in order to, to be, make an, an action morally condemnable, there should have been a, a, a reasonable chance of them understanding what they should and shouldn't do and, and, and making the wrong choice. And so, that's, so that's different from, from intention. Uh, and I think that, you know, you're talking you were talking earlier about the you know the earliest hominids and it really does seem to be that the earliest hominids have made you know very very significant environmental changes but just like just like a uh i don't know let's think of an example a a dog that bites you or something like that you know we we don't think that the dog has done anything morally wrong uh, well, and, let, and, let me and let me challenge, challenge probably that. wouldn't let think me. that that early people have done anything morally wrong either well let, let me challenge that Right, because I think that you're basically kind of portraying these people as ignorant savages when they're nothing of the sort. If you take the Maori, for example, then they settled in New Zealand. New Zealand was settled within roughly the medieval period, right? It's one of the last major landmasses on earth to be settled and it was settled by Polynesian islanders, not by Australian Aboriginals. So a completely different linguistic and genetic settlement pattern. They came to modern, you know, the, the land that we now call New Zealand and they had huge moa, which they ate, right? And they used to kill the moa. They ate the legs, left the rest of the carcass. They weren't interested in the rest of the carcass, right? I, I think it's reasonable to argue that they were well aware that they were depleting the stock of moa. And if you take the view that, you know, the kings and queens of medieval England were making 
moral decisions. It's a very big leap to say that the Maori in a similar period of time were so basic and naive and, uh, you know, subhuman. They, they couldn't have advanced moral philosophy in the same way that we have today. I, I don't think you go to New Zealand and say that Maori that are in the parliament today are not capable of moral reasoning. So, you know, at what point in their history did they, you know, suddenly snap out of it? Was it, you know, 1429 or, you know, 1972? Or what? When, when, when did the Maori suddenly acquire these powers of moral reasoning that you, your argument seems to suggest that they might have lacked when they were making the mower extinct? I haven't made that argument at all, I don't think. I think what I'm trying to, to so the question as I originally understood it was how would a particular school of environmental philosophers have explained the difference between environmental changes which happened in the deeply historic past? How would they, would they have explained those as, as wrongdoing as different from modern environmental changes? Um, because, and the implication of that argument was, is that if they, they, if they were going to condemn those positions, which would be, yeah, unless they could also condemn those positions, they wouldn't have a leg to stand on with, with condemning modern change. I think that they would, that they, yes, I think they would probably think that there were qualitative differences in, in that modern environmental change was like. But their view isn't my view. And throughout the thesis, I'm critiquing views like this. And indeed, environmental philosophy has split largely from these kind of views, mostly because they think that an environmental ethics, which is based on preserving an environment in an unchanged form, which doesn't allow for any kinds of human modification, is going to be uh, inadequate, right? And in fact, the um, the, the 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 new school new school new uh, ways of thinking within environmental philosophy are very much about um, understanding uh, humans as part of a natural world and what the kind of um, you know bounds of kind of cohabitability are and what the kind of ethics of cohabitating with of, you know living things and species are. Um, so so my view is quite different from that. But I was asked to e explain what I thought a certain other school of thinking would have said. I agree with you that um, it, it seems impossible to condemn um, all forms of historic environmental change. In fact, it seems very obvious that some amount of environmental change is, is requisite for, for any and all human activity. But just recognizing that some forms of, of, of environmental change clearly are legitimate, even large scale ones, would be a misrepresentation of the problem. After all, it seems very obvious that we, we think that, well, very often it seems that many of us uh, take, it as, take it for granted that there are obligations to preserve natural spaces or, you know, likewise, preserve historic buildings or preserve. Um, and so maybe, maybe the, 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 other, the, way, the other way of thinking about this kind of duty to preserve intact is something like the same as preserving historic artifacts. It's about preserving something we like something we'd like to see, uh, or something that can teach us something about the way the world used to be. So, so the defense is much more, I think, sophisticated than it's, it might be being made out to be here. Yeah, look, my, my problem is not with a, um, 
with, with, the, with the idea that these arguments are relevant. I'm just trying to draw attention to how complex it is to draw sharp distinctions about where they do or don't apply, right? And just for the record, I think I could imagine myself as a time traveler Maori and saying, maybe stop eating these Maori before there are none left, you know? Ah. Like, you're going to have to find other food sources. And, you know, there are, there are cognitively sophisticated... Uh, uh, it was, you know, it's not like going back and explaining that to Homo erectus, is it? I mean, these these are basically modern humans, that, you know, forming a, a a perfectly normal part of New Zealand's society and economy, right? Of course, so I, I, don't, I, I, I don't have would, any. I would never and, and never did suggest otherwise. No, I know. I'm not suggesting yeah, course, we did say yeah. otherwise. But what I'm saying is that I think that, you know, I think it is is easy to imagine, you know, myself or somebody else going back to the Maori and saying maybe it isn't a very good idea to eat the last. Of these birds that you value so highly so could you please stop doing it because you might want them and we might want them so the point i'm making is that i think environmental philosophy has to start off with a based on the principle of extensive anthropogenic interference from the get-go i don't think you can i don't think you can conduct in a vacuum and i think we both agree on that point that it doesn't make any sense to conduct in a vacuum uh, yeah and so, it is it is an interesting point within the theory is that if you are going to say that yeah, Homo erectus was not morally responsible for, for its choices, but but at some point there, people did become morally responsible for their choices. It is, I think that is a very interesting kind of challenge to to that view, is, is identifying exactly why or when such a qualitative kind of change occurred. Because, yeah, it seems very, very difficult to work out what that would be. Well, yeah, the reason that I'm using Homo erectus because it's a clear species differentiation. But, yeah, yeah. You know, I think, you know, when you've got a, a population which might have been living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, but it's a you know, comparatively sophisticated population and in comparatively modern times, like the, the Maori in New Zealand, you know, I, I think it is relatively easy to draw a distinction between the actions of Australian Aboriginals 60,000 years ago coming into, you know, what they saw as, Terra nullis by our words, not theirs. And, um, you know, the, the Maoris in a more modern time, it's a, a much more technologically advanced civilization. You know, they had, they had long range canoes and things like that. You know, the, the level of cognition to survive in Polynesian landscape is very much different to that required to survive in the Australian landscape. And therefore, you could imagine that the, the cognitive sophistication and their consideration of the environment might also have been different. Now, you know, that's a, that's a distinction that people may or may not choose to draw. You know, there's a, a bit of a political hot potato, the different uh, cognitive styles and cognitive abilities of different people and how human cognition evolved over a period of time. And I don't want to get um, into a position of getting pelted with eggs at public events because I've said the wrong thing on a podcast. But the point I'm making is that these distinctions are not always easy to make and the answers are not readily apparent. And thus putting in a philosophical framework based on an assumption of pristineness is is in my view intellectually bankrupt it doesn't make any sense you just can't you can't you can't draw anything useful from it because it just doesn't reflect the world as we as we find it right it's you know perhaps more applicable to space law in fact that you know you could say well we shouldn't go and mess around with mars because it's a lovely pristine place this is exactly how it should be and we don't want humans stomping around all over it but it doesn't really apply to earth because it you know earth isn't like that now the point I'm making is that if we've established that, and I think we have, but now you know we've, we've probed the grey areas on the edges a bit. But what we haven't done is is tried to develop a moral philosophy that certainly within the bounds of this podcast that takes that into account. But in your thesis, you very much certainly have. So how does how does this 
non-ideal or anthropogenically modified world affect our engagement with the philosophical issues that affect us regarding specifically geoengineering? So the fetus is mostly interested in doing, returning to these kind of early environmental philosophers and providing kind of re-readings of their, their thinking. You know, like I say earlier, a lot of these thinkers were sort of active in the kind of late 70s and early 80s where, and you know, perhaps we can talk about the, 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 the long kind of history of uh, climate engineering proposals. But by and large, this was a problem that was unknown to them. Um, the kinds of uh, environmental problems that they were thinking about were, were much more, uh, I don't know, some, somewhat clear, it almost seemed quite now, but, but things like, um, you know, deforestation or uh, overhunting and, um, well, whaling, I suppose. Whaling was huge at this point. Um, I would say any quaint. I mean, like, you know, no, deforestation is still a massive active issue. And while the species might change, you know, to a large extent, we've reduced the threats to most species of whales. I mean, they still suffer from ship strikes, but they're not hunted to the point of extinction like there was a real risk that they would have been. You know, species loss is, is, is still effective. I mean, the UK at the moment is in a biodiversity crisis from the link, you know, combined effects of light pollution, land use change, pesticides. And then we're still in the middle of a bio, bio, biodiversity collapse. So... You know, I don't think it's a quaint concern at all, right? No, certainly not. But what I mean to say is the things they're worried about is, is things like overfishing, overhunting, uh, you know, very clear-cut kind of environmental destruction. What seems quaint about it, I think, is that, um, you know, you compare this to if the, the environmental ethics kind of worry about geoengineering, which is, you know, it, do humans have the moral license to, um, you know, radically alter the way you know, the Earth's fundamental biogeochemical processes operate. And in some ways, it's, it's, you know, don't cut down all the trees. It seems quite quaint in, 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 um, in comparison to that. That's not to underplay the, the importance of yeah, biodiversity collapse. Right? And so I think, upon reflection, the reason why, and this, this gets to the point, I think, the reason why it seems that a lot of these early environmental philosophers were very concerned with, with non-intervention and leaving alone is because the kinds of environmental problems they were worried about are ones where it seems seem very clear that the problem is, is uh, over-intervention by, by people. It's about taking whales out of the ocean. It's about clear-cutting, you know, old-growth uh, forest in, in the... Uh, you know, the northwest of the US and, and things like that. It's very easy to look at that problem, I suspect, and go, okay, what we need is, is people to, you know, leave, leave bloody nature alone, create some, some laws, you know, uh, preventing people from acting just how they would and, and create spaces which are all entirely nature's to, to you know, a wildlife preserve or, or something like that. This was the time of the Lorax, wasn't it? Dr. Circe's the Lorax. Yeah, precisely. Uh, right, right. You know, you, you can watch Star Eurus. A sci-fi fan, you think about the the crazy um, um, uh, Star Trek film where they they go back and talk to whales, right? You know, the <laughs> the aim is to, to to leave alone, right? These are these are the kind of environmental issues which are in vogue in the kind of seventies and eighties. Well, that's an um, excellent opportunity for getting sidetracked because <laughs> the, you say that's far fetched, but actually scientists are now starting to use AI to decode cetacean conversation and we've discovered in the last few years 
that dolphins, we're pretty confident now, dolphins refer to each other by name, or at least call each other by name. So the idea is that we can talk to animals, or that even aliens might decide to talk to animals, is not as far-fetched from a pure signal processing point of view. Whether aliens might bother coming to talk to dolphins is another matter, but the central concept of uh, aliens coming having a chat with the dolphins isn't actually completely barking. There's some really interesting research to be worth re- that is worth reading on that. Yeah. But anyway, back to the plot. But back to the plot. Where was I? So, what? Why it's interesting to reread these authors, whose um, I think you know the kind of, with the kind of environmental problems they were used to considering, naturally reached kind of leave it alone conclusions. In the light of kind of climate change and and geoengineering as you know part of a solution to it, is that it seems to buck the kind of brand of what they were used to thinking about. So the problem is 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 climate change, and the proposed solution is geoengineering. If indeed this is the best way of handling you know the problem of anthropogenic climate change is that it it asks them to kind of go against what their natural intuitions are that the response that you should have i've got a really interesting story about this Um, i i read when i was a kid and it was one of the first books that got me into environmentalism there are two 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 books that influenced me greatly so the first one was called children of the dust which is about the consequence of nuclear war and i remember speaking to Christine Merck about that, and she also read it when she was a similar age to me, about eight years old, and was always thoroughly traumatised by it. And that really got me into the idea that, you know, what we see around us isn't this kind of enduring, stable state that will never be disrupted, but something which is fragile and worthy of preservation. Uh, and the second one in, in this specific theme uh, was a book called Earth Change by Claire Cooper, which is perhaps not as well, uh, you know, remembered. It's not kind of gone down as a classic or anything like that, but it's still influenced personally my uh, thinking greatly and this is about uh, weather modification and a kind of disaster that's been caused by weather modification uh, leading to you know kind of uh if people remember the book the road where they had a kind of collapse of uh, the climate mm-hmm. system it was like a kind of kids version of the road i guess and the the book was the story about how they went to kind of recover the knowledge from you know old media in uh in, the, in a book it was described as a like a video type, like VCR type technology, they managed to recover the knowledge from and then fix the problem. And that was a sort of central plot of the book. Um, and and that wrote to the author about 30, 40 years after reading the book, said, you know, this like thanks for writing this. This really got me into it. I'm now working on geoengineering. She was not best pleased. I think her philosophy hadn't moved on from the time, you know, even though she'd inspired me to get involved with the field and to learn about the Earth system and the interventions that we could to protect it her philosophy was still in that kind of what you might call first or second wave where you know non-intervention was the the order of the day right so you know sometimes the culture around the philosophers who perhaps did the deepest and most academic thinking at the time the people who are of that opinion set and perhaps some of the older geoengineers as well uh, or geoengineering academics might not be as favorably disposed to to the field as you know perhaps some of the newer entrants to the field do you notice the stratification between the generations in the geoengineering field or not well so so one of the things that i mean this is not quite the answer to, to the question and I, I can answer that later but but what i i think is interesting is is recognizing that paul taylor the person and paul taylor the writings are are going to be quite different now we are 
we said earlier, you know, can we can we ask him or find out what he thinks? Unfortunately, no, he's, he is dead. Um, but in some ways, I think like your your story of of writing to the author, then that yes, the Paul Taylor, the person would probably be um, no friend of geoengineering. But what I think is interesting from going back to my rereadings of these these people in the thesis is that perhaps despite what they would have wanted, I think there are plausible cases to be made for geoengineering within the kind of ethical guidelines that they have set out. And so it's interesting then to, to wonder why, well, not so much as anything that can tell us anything about geoengineering, but, but why they failed to get their kind of perhaps true beliefs across in, in their ethics, or, or maybe in another way, why their beliefs might not have tracked what they'd written down. Um, but as for but whether there's... you say that, I mean, you sound like you're almost kind of like one of these religious reinterpretation people, right? So you kind of, what would Jesus carry? That kind of US kind of uh, gun rights arguments that try and invoke Christian principles into violence. Now, I don't want to particularly take a side of, on that debate. That's not the point. The, the point I'm making is that people take thousands year old philosophies and try and solve moral problems today with them. And, you know, they might, I can't really imagine like the historical figure of Jesus brandishing an M16, but some people can, right? And they, uh, they imagine that there's lessons in the writings and thinkings of people from millennia ago that are directly and immediately applicable to the moral arguments of today. Do, you know, you seem to be following a, a, a kind of compressed version of that. Do you think that that is, as a strategy, do you think you can go back to these historical writers and find solutions to philosophical and moral questions? Well, when we're talking about historical here, here, you know, the difference between 1986 and uh, 00 uh, AD is probably quite striking. But, but Oh, interesting. But, there was no zero. Uh, that timeline never had a zero. But, yeah, I get your point. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's temporally compressed. But nevertheless, if a new moral problem arises, it doesn't mean that the philosophy that is developed within an older moral framework is applicable. New New technologies need new moral solutions, you know. Revenge porn wasn't really a thing in those days either, but you know we still have to deal with those kind of moral questions arising as a result of that. So, you know, do we just need a new generation of writers? Should should we be talking to twenty two year olds rather than rereading the um, philosophical poetry of dead dudes to try and solve these moral questions now? So I suppose the the issue is so Paul Taylor gives us four um, duties or something that he thinks. Uh, you know, respecting nature entails. One is non-interference, one is restitutive duty, and there are two others, fidelity and God, now you're testing me, something else. All duties, right. Now the question, so Paul Taylor never said anything directly about geoengineering, but we can look at these four duties and make inferences about what we should do when prompted by a new problem, right? Does geoengineering conflict with the duty of non-interference? Well, as I suggest, does the, uh, the duty of restitutive justice allow for it under occasion? The question isn't, so while he never told us anything about geoengineering directly, when you look at the, the ethics that he proposes, you can still make inferences about what the answer might be. Um, and then there's a question of whether that tracks what the person would ever have thought. But that's kind of by the by. I think that's an interesting like aside. Uh, but do you need to make a new ethics 
in response to a new ethical problem? Well, it seems to me very like the question then is, is it something about ethical knowledge, right? Because um, if, you know, Paul Taylor comes up with justifications for why he thinks these duties follow from, you know, recognising the non-instrumental moral worth of all living things. And, and so if, you, if you're saying that you need a new... Sorry, ethics, what's a non-instrumental moral sorry, worth? Yeah. That's, a, that's a philosophical, technical term, right? So let's explain this quickly. Suppose a painting might have might be very valuable to us. We both like looking at paintings and we would both be sad if the painting got destroyed. That painting has instrumental moral worth to us. Its value um, is a factor of how valuable it is to us. And that's because me and you both being human beings are inherently morally valuable. We have a non-instrumental moral worth. We're where the buck stops effectively morally. And so if something's only instrumentally valuable, it's because it's, it's useful for something which is non-instrumentally morally worth. Something which has non-instrumental moral worth, it's useful for them achieving whatever their ends are. Um, yeah, it might be something like that. Bears at the beginning. Like, right, you know, yeah, yeah. Bears, so Bears might be valuable from a chest and fence point of view in that you kind of don't, don't mess with the bears because it will do terrible things to you. And that, you know, we see that reflected in belief reflected right back to primitive society. So they had the idea of sort of spiritually significant animals you couldn't mess with. But now, you know what, you might have people who hold a set of views where certainly around great apes, there's been a, a move in various countries to get great apes recognised as having human rights. I mean, just because they can't form conventional human language doesn't mean that they don't reflect large amounts of human cognition and and qualia, to give it its technical name, where they're kind of the subjective feelings like you know mm -hmm. you you look at humans punching each other in the face and outside a nightclub at uh, 3 a.m and you think mm, that's kind of similar to what a lot of great apes do in various different ways and so we're probably feeling roughly the same things inside so we are experiencing or they are experiencing at the same time so they perhaps have the same fundamental moral worth as we do in that regard, but something like a starfish probably doesn't have the same or any cognition um, as we might know it. And therefore, that might draw that distinction between instrumental and non-instrumental moral worth, right? Right. And so traditionally, uh, certainly like Western kind of uh, philosophical thinking, you know, from Plato to Kant, uh, has, has, has traditionally only thought that humans, that humans were the only possessors of non-instrumental moral worth either you know and there were lots of different reasons that people gave for thinking that only humans had a soul or only humans you know if you can't uh, only humans can understand what morality is and so you know you have to be a well i can't uh, understand what morality is so does no. that mean no, i don't matter <laughs> well you have conceptions of right and wrong or at least you have the ability to form them whereas other animals don't have the ability to form them so can't fall. And that's not true. Even sticklebacks will punish sticklebacks that don't get involved in a fight. So I think that's a very limited. There's too many people who write on philosophy, don't know enough about biology to make pronouncements about the distinctions between humans and animals. I find it very annoying when people say stuff like that, to be honest, because there is a lot of examples of altruism. Elephants are, are notably altruistic within the animal kingdom. Um, many other animals will form bonds or, you know, recognize outgroup dogs, for example will be very friendly to 
um, humans that they consider allies and very aggressive to ones that they don't. You know, I think it's very lazy to draw the kind of bright line between humans and animals that are proposed in the arguments that you've made, even though these might not be your own arguments. I don't want to upset you again. I clearly upset you earlier by attacking an argument and accidentally portraying it as if it was yours and it wasn't. So I'm not going to make that mistake again, so don't get my head beaten off. So, but I do think it's lazy, and I do think that animals do have the basis of what we understand to be morality, right? So, uh, yes, I, I agree with you. And I think the, the argument in Kant is, is, is more, more complicated than, than what I, I've made it out to be. Um, but basically, basically, it comes down to uh, having kind of, well, his argument is something like humans are the only ones who possess something like formal reason. And you have to be, have to be reasoning to, to create a, a very formalistic conception of what he, he thinks morality is. And so on that basis, he, he, he excludes anything other than humans. But the just for the record, again, that's lazy because Corvids can solve logic problems. Dolphins have rudimentary language. Chimps can uh, acquire quite sophisticated sign language. You know, there's a lot of examples of things that could be called reasoning. Parrots can distinguish where whether shapes are similar or different by colour versus their form. You know, there's a lot of examples. I just, you know, just it's just a point of irritation for me when. Yeah, I mean, Kant was writing in like the, the, the late 1700s, so to, to credit to him, he probably couldn't have known. And then, and then similarly. You know, the ability to distinguish different kinds of shapes and stuff is, is quite different from understanding. No, I get it. Kant's I'm, conception I'm not, I'm not, of the moral law. Yeah, I get it. I'm not suggesting that pa- parrots can understand utilitarianism. What I'm saying uh-huh. is that to draw a kind of a bright line between humans and all other species and saying, oh, humans moral, all other species immoral, and it so, just doesn't stand up to scrutiny, right? And so this has been the, the basically, this is where environmental philosophy begins. It's going. I think these traditional justifications for limiting non-instrumental moral worth to, to humans are, are inadequate. And then the question becomes, well, if it's inadequate to limit it just to people, well, where does, where does it extend? Is it just, like you say earlier, yeah, the great ape project, is it just humans and great apes? Or is it humans and you know, all animals above a certain intelligence threshold? So you said parrots, corvids, dogs. Maybe, you know, is there an intelligence quotient where, you know, you're above it or below it? And that's when you start to matter morally. Or is it, you know, in, and, you know, there are theoretical splits between what we call animal ethics, which has traditionally limited it to humans and other animals, normally on the basis of what you said earlier, qualia, particularly the, the, abil- the, the ability to have a qualia of suffering. If you can suffer, then you are you matter morally in some way, but and that would exclude things like plants and mushrooms, rocks, rivers. You know, those things probably don't have any kind of qualia, and so don't. Well, that's really interesting. You you should say that. So, I mean, there is there's some discussion over it. Well, yeah, yeah. I just want to draw attention to that, if I may, because there's a couple of examples. There are several natural features, like rivers and stuff like that, that have obtained legal personhood yes and they, that's true you know and and they're they're not but there are many cultures that regard natural um uh, systems or uh, features as having spirit Na- native americans and australian aboriginals both describe uh, a very distinct spirituality to parts of the landscape right um yep. maybe not to the point where they actually view them as being conscious beings but they view them as having what you might call uh, you know that 
they might instrumentalize those beliefs. I can't remember which way around it went. Basically, uh, yeah, they might say that they they had a kind of non-instrumental worth because if we're asking about whether we get to destroy this river, it, it, or I don't know, how would you put it? It matters. No, well, let, me, let me explain it. Let me explain it simply. Right, I think if you asked an Australian Aboriginal if everybody in the world was dead, would Ayers Rock still matter? They call it Uluru, right? Yeah, I would imagine although I'm not an expert on Aboriginal philosophy, I would imagine that they would say that Uluru would still matter even if there are no people on Earth, right? Yes, um, that, and that, that seems like you would expect someone who thought it had non-instrumental moral worth to, to say. Yeah, okay. And the other thing is that in terms of consciousness, there is a, a niche but certainly not you know, rare belief that um, animals are not the only conscious beings, that mycorrhizal fungal networks plants or plants in individually or plant in ecosystems collectively are conscious and i actually find that both an interesting belief and one that is not that hard to imagine you take time scale out of it i mean we humans work on a kind of millisecond to second type consciousness right it takes me about 100 milliseconds like if a grenade goes off in, in the room next to me it's gonna i'm gonna notice that about 100 milliseconds after it occurs right and then my consciousness, you know, extends out to, you know, years and a human lifetime. But it's perfectly conceivable that there are biological forms that just have a completely different physical manifestation than we do and work on a completely different timescale. Um, and those have been conceived in sci-fi as well as in science. So I think there's one, a book called Dragon's Egg, which was about the idea of uh, species existing on the surface of neutron stars. Which would have worked in a, in, you know, incalculably faster. Well, calculably faster, but unimaginably faster from a human point of view. And they wouldn't have been able to think on the same time scales as we think, right? Because their world is so much better connected and so much more time compressed than ours. So I think it's very dangerous to make glib statements that, you know, plants can't be conscious and stuff like that when there are, you know, dedicated professionals who've got years of experience in their field who take very seriously the idea of plant consciousness. So I think I, you know, I don't want to, be assert others' expertise. Well, I do generally. I mean, that's the whole point of review to podcast. But on this particular example, I won't. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a, an interesting debate we can return to. And so, uh, again, the, sort of sets these boundaries to this very complex discipline that you're talking about, right? And so the the yeah, so the answer is what you would need to know for certain theories of environmental ethics as to whether those had non-instrumental moral value wasn't when whether they were conscious because it's not it's not immediately obvious what conscious means but but whether they would whether they could suffer right because the the idea being that if you can have an suffering is an inherently bad experience it wouldn't be suffering if it wasn't bad and if you can have an inherently bad experience then you have some kind of you know you're owed a kind of duty to, to 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 have that taken seriously. Well, I think I think plant, you know, from a plant physiology point of view, plants certainly know when they've been injured, and they know when other yeah. plants have been injured, right? So I think consciousness is important. I think you do need to draw a distinction between detection of a stimuli and reaction to it to having an internalized concept of suffering, which is I think the one you're referring to, right? Yes, right. The, you know, there's a difference between recognizing that you've been damaged you know a computer or, or a robot can recognize when it's damaged but it probably doesn't have returning to this idea again qualia the, the kind of quail of of suffering and that's what seems important 
And so you can definitely, you know, we're getting into the, the weeds of this debate here, but but so the point just, recognizing, just, just recognizing that plants can respond to damage is not in and of itself a recognition that they can suffer and therefore be considered morally. Um, and that, that's traditionally how certain animal ethicists have excluded plants on, or yeah, even, I agree. even in even wrong. in recognition of them. Yeah. But, but I'm just saying that isn't it's glib to just say, oh, plants aren't conscious, because there are quite a lot of people who genuinely believe that plants are conscious. Uh, so I just think we should be respectful of the diversity of belief on what is. I mean, it's not called a hard problem for nothing, is it? Right. Ah, and yeah. uh, and it's the absolute foundation of philosophy is. You know, if everything feels pain, I mean, I, I, you know, read one really, really interesting piece of philosophy that suggested that consciousness arises at the subatomic level, that, you know, an electron is conscious of its energy level. And I was like, wow, that really is quite a radical idea. But it's not completely obviously bonkers, is it? And um, the, the point I'm making is that, you know, I think to wander into a moral debate with glib statements about the limits of, of consciousness, you know, saying that. You know, non-human animals don't have any non-instrumental moral value or whatever is really risky. And I think that what you're talking about there, the deep green arguments, your consciousness is a part of it, as you rightly point out. But it's not the whole argument. You know, starfish might have value from a non-instrumental point of view, even if they don't, you know, have a conscious sense of the world around them. But I'm right. And this, do is, have this is traditionally as well the, the break then between what is normally portioned off as animal ethics, which is and um, has traditionally relied on things like consciousness and suffering to what we might term environmental ethics uh, as a kind of um yeah sub-discipline um which is has so if if your ethics is built around the ability to suffer it normally thinks that the what matters morally is is individuals individual humans individual dogs individual starfish individual sufferers right um but Certain environmental well, things. That's right. an individualized notion of. Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, like a Russian or a Chinese person might view the individual as much less important than a collective. Quite right. And, I mean, and these are debates that are happening among Western philosophers. It's, like you said earlier, they're, they're about uh, kind of indigenous philosophies of, um, you know, seeing non instrumental worth everywhere. There is a very involved school of environmental ethics which. Is, is is very interested in these kind of uh, non-Western perspectives on where uh, where value, where moral value might lie. Well, to, um, to but, give a very specific example, right? You know, the way that Russia fighting is fighting its war in Ukraine is an anathema to many Westerners. The idea that they're taking, you know, people just ripping them out of the workplace, giving them minimal military training, and then sending off to be slaughtered on the front line. That's just not how Western armies fight wars. But it's how well, Russia's been fighting wars for centuries. Now, you could just say, well, you know, Russia is morally bankrupt. It's a terrible, you know, terrible society. It's been a terrible society for hundreds of years. But it may just be that they've just got a different concept of morality and just see the world in a different way. Now, you know, I'm not here to be a Russia apologist. Now, you know, I'm very clear which flag I'm flying in that war. But um, I'm just trying to give a bit of air to the idea that maybe the Western tradition of individualism and the philosophy on which it's based isn't the last word in philosophy. No, and precisely the point is that many environmental philosophers go further and say that this focus on individualism in 
trying to explain you know what parts of nature might matter is going to be a problem as well right because often when we think about what it's important to preserve or or what seems to matter in the environmental world is is collective entities right we we talk about ecosystem preservation or species preservation um, or returning to to geoengineering we might think that the worry is over modifying the climate right and, and none of those things seem to be individual entities they're all collectives and they're they're certainly kind of collectives which don't have a reason or suffering or whatever it is that you think makes individuals morally relevant so the the big kind of question was is okay we think ecosystems matter or or species matter so we need to come up with justifications for why this kind of individualism is 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 inadequate uh, well, and give let reasons me just, for- just comment on that if i may i, I think it's interesting to draw out what you just said there. What what I perceive from what you described is that individualism is for me and my tribe and people like me. Collectivism is for the outgroup. Collectivism is how I project morality on people I don't think to be as good as I am. Right. So I might say, well, look, you know, look at those aboriginals, you know, how terrible it is the way that their lifestyle is being eroded. But, you know, if they are involved in brutal tribal wars and maiming children as part of their culture, you know, that 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 particular wellspring of philosophy might be less bothered about that. You know, similarly, you might say, well, look, we want to preserve antelopes. But, you know, we understand that part, part of preserving antelopes is that they get eaten by wolves occasionally. Now, you know, I'm not saying that those two distinctions are morally equal. You might view violence in primitive human societies as being you know, very much the concern of modern legal systems or something that can be intervened. And, you know, the Victorian colonialists certainly did. They wanted to civilise what they saw as the savages. You know, modern sections of ethics often take a very different view and, and, and don't look to try and place superlative Western moral systems and don't support colonialism in that way. But, you know, the Victorians certainly did. But the point I'm making is that the kind of othering of the, you know, the, or the collectivization of the other is um, something that you're describing. But perhaps merits challenge you know there are some you know albeit relatively extreme viewpoints that you know we should do things like culling predators because they you know they harm animals they kill them in a cruel fashion now i'm not saying that you know i'm not in a kind of like extreme sort of fruitarian moral camp you know you take these abstruse philosophical arguments and then try to apply them to the real world but you know some people do i think that if we're exploring moral philosophy as we're trying to do here you've got to look at some of these appear to be fringe perspectives and say you know why are they wrong you know why should we allow a brutal natural world to survive unchallenged you know is it okay if we allow you know dog, uh, killer whales well the orcas to go and rip the liver out of sharks uh, you know is is that okay are we are we going to allow bonobos to commit child abuse or what would be child sex abuse in human societies you know or should we intervene you know i i i'm not saying that these are i'm not saying we should intervene but I'm saying that when we start applying these technical, philosophical, moral considerations to arguments like geoengineering and, and to interventions in the natural world, we quickly run up against some really difficult questions like, you know, what is consciousness? What is non-instrumental moral value? Um, does the collective or the individual matter? And these can't really be. I mean, you could say that, you know, this is all academic angels on pinhead stuff. It doesn't matter. You know, we've just got to stop geoengineering because it's bad. 
But then when you start picking apart why it's bad or why it isn't bad, you do really quickly bump up against these really fundamental concepts of, you know, what is the basis of moral philosophy, right? In, in fact, it's actually a very quick route to get to these issues because it so naturally cross-cuts them. You know, issues like murder, for example, you know, you, you don't, you know, I, I haven't murdered a chimp recently, okay? So working out whether I would or wouldn't have murdered a chimp had I killed one is is not something which is, you know, it doesn't come into my everyday orbit. But you know, certainly working on geoengineering, questions around the sanctity of the natural world or its non-instrumental values, you might put it, they do come up. And, you know, geoengineering, therefore, is quite an interesting test case to bend and break some of these moral rules, right? And precisely, and that's why I, well, it's part of the motivation for wanting to do the, the thesis is that geoengineering, right, like, as you say, seems to conflict with lots of uh, these kind of early philosophers thinking about, about environmental ethics. And, and also, it seems, based on the social scientific studies we do of people's personal opinions when they are first kind of confronted with the idea of, of geoengineering is that they, they, they say things like, I'm worried that this tampers with nature. Um, so it seems like people, even if they've never thought about you know, moral philosophy before, do have kind of intuitions that this seems to, um, that geoengineering seems to treat the natural world in a way that they're not comfortable with. Well, I think everyone thinks about moral philosophy. I think they might not call it moral philosophy, but no, they yeah. decide whether or not to punch people in the face on a regular basis, right? Everyone thinks about ethics and morality, but they might not think about it in what we would maybe say in a philosophical way. way. Yeah, yeah. But yes, you're right. Everyone thinks about ethics. And certainly when people are saying that they are worried that geoengineering tampers with nature, they, they very evidently seem to be making an ethical claim. After all, tampering is very different from changing, right? It implies value judgment going on. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that you bring up things like anti-predation anti thinking, because it, it, it loops back around, I guess, to why people, well, why these kind of environmental philosophers were so interested in, in having kind of non-interventionist thinking. Um, and it, part of it is is because in their kind of you know discussions among themselves, one well, one of the things that they would find is that if you didn't have these let nature do its thing kind of principles going on, is that you would you would get things like well, maybe we need to radically change the natural world. Maybe it, it's full of like you know natural suffering that we should you know be using our you know intelligent human minds to to eliminate we should be trying to eliminate suffering wherever we find it and i think partly the, the reason why you is you get things like yeah these strongly non-interventionist perspective is is because they're aware that if you get rid of them then you you know you're going to get quickly like you know slide towards intervention everywhere and it, it does seem to, a bit like the tampering with nature thing, it does seem to go against kind of intuitions about what seems right and wrong kind of vis-a-vis -vis the, the natural world. I, th I think we, we, we typically think that, you know, a world where humans are managing, you know, predation or, or managing, you know, natural functioning in an extremely invasive way seems, I mean, invasive is kind of a bad piece of terminology there because it prompts you to think that it is wrong, but but having a very involved role in managing the natural world is it probably goes against our intuitions like i say the intuition that certain parts of nature are worth preservation seems seems very strong so 
it is interesting to think about geoengineering in this this way. It does seem to challenge our intuitions. But it's also interesting to look at how that idea of preserving nature arose, because I mean, yeah, precisely, um, yeah. In in the sort of medieval European period, the idea of nature preservation was intricately linked with the idea of forest preservation. Yeah, yeah. And forest preservation was not done because people liked forests for the birds. They did it because they needed firewood, right? And if you let people go in and chop trees down and recklessly use them and not replant, then you don't have any firewood, right? And that's catastrophic. So, and this is this is what you might say an instrumental argument for exactly. nature preservation. Yeah, exactly. But also that it was very much about pres- preserving intact environments, and you know the idea of like preserving a pervasive butterfly species would have been pretty alien in Shakespeare's time, right? Whereas the idea of preserving a specific forest, you could say the forest starts here, was much less alien. And, and they very much did that, right? So, you know, all of these things have got, they don't just come out of nowhere, right? You know, these moral choices and, and philosophies, but, you know, they come from somewhere. And, you know, we've got to look back. And I think you've done quite a sense. We've gone back and looked, looked back about, uh, you know, the, the sort of first and second generation philosophers in on these very issues when you've been trying to shed some light on the subject um, right yeah so think... people are worried about tampering with nature we should find out what tampering with nature is by looking at these philosophers and and then this make a decision about whether we think that geoengineering actually does tampering it's about looking for those original justifications for strongly non-interventionist perspectives and, and making evaluations of them that's right that's that's the center of the thesis okay well i think yeah. The chance of us solving the entirety of moral philosophy if we keep banging on ha. is going to be... I'd be a, out of a um, job. So I'm going to ask, did your thesis or your blog post cite my paper on legitimacy of private geoengineering or any of my other work? I'm is sorry it? to say it didn't. I'm sorry to say no. Well, on those grounds alone, I'm going to reject it with a recommendation that you read a more broad canon of literature, mainly including my own work. Use that as... Uh, our traditionally flimsy pretext for rejection. Thank you for coming on the show and look forward to hearing more from you as you do more work in this career. Right. Well, it's been brilliant speaking to you and uh, thanks for the opportunity to share the work. What what you got planned next? I'm finishing up a paper at the moment looking at kind of calls for reversibility in, in geoengineering good governance. People talk about reversibility all the time, and no one has a clear idea of what it means. So that's uh, in the works. And there's. Are you talking about institutional reversibility, or are you talking about reversibility? reversibility? Precisely. No one, <laughs> when people include calls for it in geoengineering governance, people are using it in very different ways, and, and it needs to be straightened out. Well, I'm sure you'll do some straightening. Well, <laughs> let us know when that comes out, and we'll get you back on the show and argue with you. And- Get you to say things you regret in future. Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Yep, good to speak to you. Bye.